It's truly a delight and joy for Denise and Brooklyn and I to be back here at Pippin today, our church family. We do appreciate very much the opportunity that you give us to, to proclaim and declare the gospel in various areas as we had the privilege to do at Montrose this past week. We're thankful for Brother Jonathan and his family that came and was able to be with us one of the nights there. And Thankful very much for all of your prayers and your encouragement that you've allowed us to be able to do that. The lectureship, the meeting, if you will, seemed to go very well. The lessons were well received. The crowds were very good. And they were very encouraging to not only this congregation, but certainly to, to us as we had the privilege of being with them. It is in that regard I'd like to express appreciation, as I think is always appropriate, to those who filled in for me. Uh, Brother Lester, I think, last Lord's Day morning in the teaching of the Bible study class. The lesson last Lord's Day morning, I think it was Brother Jeff who delivered that lesson. Very blessed we are at Pippin to have these men who are more than excited and eager to use their talents in those ways. And it is the case that one more time, as far as we know this year, that will also be a privilege and opportunity. I'll be involved in that meeting at the Broadway congregation next Lord's Day morning, and so I would ask that you be with, uh, be with us in your thoughts and prayers in that regard. Uh, that'll be, in, again, in Campbellsville, Kentucky, so that's a little bit of a further drive from here. But nonetheless, they've uh, asked us to put that on our books, to be with them for quite some time, and we, we were happy to oblige them in that invitation. The Horror of the Crucifixion. You'll see on the wall to my left that that's the title I selected for the lesson this morning based on that reading of Mark 15, 15. I thought it interesting to give some thought at least to those matters this morning as we particularly notice what season of the year it is. Many of us need not be reminded of that actually. We've already begun to see any number of reminders of Halloween. We see costumes, candy in abundance. We notice all kinds of matters that draw our attention be it scary movies or otherwise, to this season known as Halloween. And in it, there's often an emphasis on a lightheartedness concerning death. We see goblins and ghouls and skeletons, and we see many other things that do, in fact, in one way or another, relate to the subject of death. This morning, though, as you and I give some thought to that, I would invite you to consider a rather mind-numbing scene in the Bible, of course, it's not made up in any way. It really happened. It was the scene surrounding the crucifixion of our Savior. I'd invite us to give a few moments reflection to it this morning as we embed in our mind and heart again what that was that took place, why it was that it happened, and what it was that was the benefit for you and I as a result of it. In fairness, I should say, some of this... We will not touch on fully this morning. We will reserve till tonight. There was more than what we could say reasonably in the allotted time this morning. So may I invite you to, if at all possible, come back with us and be with us this evening as we will look at some extended matters concerning this same scenario of the crucifixion. With those thoughts in mind, let me ask you to, first of all, let's set the characters. I thought this morning we would make the following approach to our study. Quite often our youngsters in school are asked to study a particular literary work, an act, if you please, a play. Let's divide this one up in the same way so that we might better appreciate the chronology of the events and the circumstances under which they took place. To do that, we first remind ourselves of the characters. You can well imagine the central figure in it all is the Son of God. By far the best individual to ever have walked this planet. 
known for his nobility and his goodness. Never once did he harm a person. He always went about doing good, Acts 10, 38. In Matthew 4, 23, we read so powerfully that they brought him all the, those that were diseased and possessed with demons and he healed them. Not only assisting those who again had various physical maladies, but casting out the demons. That aspect of him was certainly highlighted in his compassion. We see that, do we not? We noted that compassion when those who had heard him preach as the close of day was drawing upon them, he in compassion fed 5,000 men alone with but five loaves and two fish. He raised Lazarus, his good friend, the one who of course had passed away in death, and yet in John eleven forty three, he cried, Lazarus, come forth, and he did. This one went about helping, assisting, encouraging. It's true, he would rebuke and reprimand when the person's life required it. But he certainly was a good, good person. If we wish to think about that typical way that some plays and some literary works are presented, he's the good guy. But let's look at some others. We also remember there was a group of close friends that the Son of God had known as the Apostles. They had been particularly tutored by Him, taught by Him, directed by Him. They had lived and seen in so such direct ways what He had done. We read, do we not, in Luke 6, 12, He prayed all night before He selected them. These were the ones that would be His closest allies and companions. We notice He taught them to pray. He taught them in many other ways about the ministry to which they'd been called, and He challenged them to live up to it. Beyond that, there was a circle of disciples. These who also supported and ministered and encouraged Jesus in any number of ways, and many of them were women. We learn in the description of them that they in such tenderness and greatness did appreciate Jesus for who He was. They believed Him to be the Son of God. We can recall what Martha said to Him on that occasion. She realized He could raise the dead and she knew that there was to be a resurrection day and she knew there was to be a judgment. Perhaps in part she had learned that from the preaching ministry of the Son of God. She believed Him. Beyond all of that, we quickly notice... There was a group of Jewish leaders. We would have to confess and admit that these individuals were fiercely protective of their position as the selected and chosen Old Testament people. They wished to share that title with no one. They wished to bequeath it to no one else. They recognized that in themselves and they held on to it with great intensity and grasped it with all the power within them. They certainly were unwilling to share it with this so-called Son of God, this King of the Jews, if you please. It is to be noted that beyond them, we do in particular see a gentleman named Pilate. He was the Roman procurator of this Judean area. He, in fact, served beneath another Roman leader named Serenius. But we find that Pilate had the authority. He had the jurisdiction, if you please, over the Judean area, the place where Jerusalem was. And Rome did not like uprisings, they did not like revolts, and they demanded that he keep things quiet in this area. Pilate sought to do that, as we shall see later in the lesson this morning. But beyond Pilate, isn't it to be noted that there were some Roman soldiers that will grace the stage of this biblical narrative shortly. These Roman soldiers were known for their ruthlessness, for their brutality, 
known for the excruciating way in which they could inflict and flog punishment upon anyone whom the Roman government had indicated was worthy of such punishment. And finally, beyond all of them, there are many others that one could name. It's not as if their parts are unimportant, but we remember Mary, Jesus' own mother. We remember Nicodemus and even some others, centurions, for example. As we give thought to all of them, they had a role to play, and it is with them in mind. One more time, I would remind us that although Halloween presents us with many rather scary scenes that are fake, they're make-believe. Folks go through mazes and haunted houses, and there are people that are waiting to scare you. This event actually happened. It's not make-believe. It's not made up. It really occurred. The events of the four gospel accounts testify to it in marvelous detail. It is with that in mind, let's proceed to the prologue for the play and then act one. When we come to the prologue, we first of all should highlight some of the matters and features that will set the stage for the play as we're about to read it. I might suggest that as often as our youngsters and our high schoolers are asked and in fact made to read many of Shakespeare's plays, Again, those have stories that can be intriguing and interesting. This one actually happened. Look again at the prologue. We encounter this Son of God who graciously entered this world of His own choosing. It was to execute the will of the Father, and He went about always doing what was in the benefit of the human family. His mission was to them. His mission was to us. As he taught and preached and lovingly set forth the will of God, he did so without desire to harm and terrorize. It's still true, isn't it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. John 3, verses 16 and 17. His mission was to save not to doom, not to ruin, not to terrorize, not to inflict punishment and harm. He came on a mission of mercy according to the marvelous grace of the Father in heaven. And yet, as He proceeded to do all of this, we learn that in Luke 2, He was an obedient and loving Son. It says that He was subject unto His parents in all things. He did their bidding. We learn later, by some 18 years, however, the time came he was baptized by John the Immerser and proceeded on a public ministry, a public preaching ministry, if you please. And as he taught, he spoke the Word of God. Repent ye, he said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, verse 17. As the Lord proclaimed and taught and preached, he directed attention to the matters of heaven the fact that life here is but temporary and there is an eternity beyond. He spoke about the kingdom, which of course was His body, the church, and He encouraged all to appreciate what that kingdom would be and what the intricate requirements were. Again, He was no criminal. He did not come as a murderer. He did not come as a thief. He did not come as one who engaged in other rebellion against the governments of the land. In fact, he even said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. We learn in Matthew 22. In fairness, among all those things, what negative could be said? But yet, as the ages and as the days roll by, in his preaching, he did in fact state that he was the Messiah. He admitted to be the Son of God. 
And he directed me into the reality of what he stood for as the emissary of heaven. Isn't it amazing then that Act 1 now opens? We come in this act to the events of Matthew 26. The Garden of Gethsemane is the setting. The particular time is the night before the Lord was crucified. We find as the events have led up to this occasion, the Lord has known it, of course, ever since He knew anything. He understood well that He was born for these moments. In the shadow of the cross, though, we learn this night how heavy His heart was. We remember the earnestness with which He prayed, Let this cup pass from me, O my Father. Matthew 26, 39. But that prayer wasn't over, for He said, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. It was always submission to the Father. It was always a dedication to what the Father's will was. Inasmuch as He knew then what lay ahead, He prayed earnestly. But it was the will of the Father that these events must happen. And so it was that He reconciled Himself to that and resigned Himself to the reality. As you notice, though, that night in the earnestness of His prayer, His three closest apostles, Peter, James, and John, even though He had brought them nearer to Him, they slept while our Savior prayed. Not once, not twice, but thrice. Jesus in His earnestness recognized even on that occasion that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It is on that occasion, though, that we find the scene rather abruptly altered and abruptly interrupted. When Judas and a band of others come to the garden, those that were with him was this great multitude, the text says. It was a multitude carrying staves and swords. And as they came, Judas placed a gentle kiss on our Savior. The betrayal, of course. Here was one that was one of those closest apostles, one whom he had selected to be an ambassador for the cause of the, of the Master. And yet, for 30 pieces of silver, he had betrayed him. Here came all this host now. And as they came, Peter in his aggressiveness pulled his sword and cut off the right ear of Malchus. Jesus wasn't overwhelmed, however. He in calmness rebuked Peter, miraculously healed the ear of Malchus, and he told Peter to put up the sword. For those who take the sword are going to die by it, he said. It is with that in mind. Jesus thus ushered and made this statement. Do you not realize I can call twelve legions of angels? At any moment he could have stopped these proceedings. At any moment, just with a mere recognition and thought, he could have brought all of this to a stop, and he didn't. He allowed them to bind him as a criminal. Not with handcuffs, of course, but what it was that they bound people in those days, they bound him and began to take him off, and that brings us to Act 2. You'll notice in regard to Act 2, it is later that night. For at this point... It was roughly 9 p.m. as best as we can tell when the events of Gethsemane began to unfold. And by the time they concluded, we may well have been near midnight. But now as we, in fact, approach the second act, we are now at the quarters, if you please. The high priest's house of both Annas and Caiaphas. After they had bound the Savior in Gethsemane, they led him off to this next place of stay. And here they proceeded to question him. And when I say they, there was a gathering of scribes and Pharisees here, waiting for his arrival, it would seem. And when, in fact, the Savior was brought, 
the high priest began to question him. What kinds of things are these? What is this doctrine that surrounds you? Jesus admitted, I haven't preached in a corner. I haven't preached in silence. Ask others what I've preached. They'll tell you. And with that, one of the officers of the high priest slapped Jesus on the face. The Son of God slapped and insulted and mocked in this regard. This is what happened shortly after midnight, likely, on the events of that day. However, as the things began to unfold, it seems more quickly, there was in the distance that night, even though the vast majority of the apostles had fled when they arrested him, they were fearful for themselves. In a distance, it would seem Peter and John followed. We notice that John was already in the proceedings of this place, in that courtyard, perhaps watching and listening. And when Peter arrived, John aided him also to come in. It is in that regard, though, that as the evening wore on, not once, not twice, but three times Peter denied his Savior. He denied his Lord. I don't know the man. You're mistaken. I don't know him. Here was one who'd been with him, watched him, observed him, witnessed him, listened to him, and now he denied even knowing him. And from a distance, the Savior espied him in the cock crew. Isn't it amazing that this one went out and wept bitterly? Peter had denied his Lord. However, as we began to see what else took place, we noticed that those who had the officiation of these matters had called in witnesses, false witnesses, the Bible says, purposely seeking to have false witnesses brought to bear. The amazing thing is, even the testimony, though, didn't agree, and thus they couldn't convict Jesus on that charge. Finally, one entered... And he made statement, this man, of course, speaking of his body, had said, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. John 2, beginning in verse 13. It was on that account that as they questioned the Savior, he again told them that he was the Son of God, and they thought they had the charge. Blasphemy it is, he's worthy of death. And so it was, the verdict of the council was blasphemy. And they thus sentenced this man in their mind to being worthy to die. As act, as act number two proceeds to close, you'll notice that there was a high degree of abuse heaped on the Savior before these events transpired. I would ask you what rule of law would lead one to appreciate this. Before he was actually declared guilty, they had slapped him, abused him, treated him in such a mocking fashion with great insult before they had convicted him. Does it sound as if it's a legitimate jurisdictional matter? I think not. On to Act 3 we must go because after their verdict of guilt, we now notice that under Roman law, the Jews could not put a man to death. The Jews had been stripped of that power. The Romans were the only ones within the jurisdiction of the nation that could authorize such, and so to Pilate they had to take our Savior by now, it was the wee hours, the early morning hours. We again notice much of this transpired at night. We might ask today, do courts hold their cases at 2 or 3 or 4 in the morning? Do they declare their verdict at 5 a.m.? Of course they don't. These proceedings from beginning to end highlight the matter of what it was and all the things that were wrong with what humans were doing in regard to this matter. As we see in act number three, Pilate began to question Jesus. 
He asserted to the Master, to Jesus, Are you not aware of the fact that I have the power to release you? I have the power to condemn you? And so often Jesus said nothing. So often He silently listened. And what words He spoke were short, brief, direct, and to the point. You'll notice or appreciate with me in that regard that First of all, Pilate listened to the Jews' accusations. This man perverts the nation. He teaches against the Caesar. He claims himself to be on equal par with him. As Pilate listened with intensity to these things, more than once he would go back in and speak with Jesus and ask Him. But first of all, we might note, as soon as Pilate learned that this man was a Galilean, he sent him to Herod. For Herod, of course, had the absolute jurisdiction specifically in that area, and hence Pilate perceived a way to absolve himself of the responsibility here. To Herod, the Lord went. Again, the Jews came along so they could accuse Jesus before Herod. Herod was anxious to hear Jesus. He was excited for Him to come. He asked about His kingship. He spoke with Him about religious matters. But he was highly disappointed because Jesus didn't say much. He simply wasn't the kind of king that Pilate, or rather that Herod perceived that he ought to be. And so before those events ended, his officers and his soldiers mocked Jesus. They put a robe on him, claim him to be a king and make fun of him. Finally, they stripped the robe off of him, send him back to Pilate. Herod, you see, wasn't satisfied, pleased with what Jesus had to say and offer. And hence, the whole matter was now put back in the lap of Pilate. Pilate was to make the decision. As Jesus came back, he began to realize the earnestness and the revolt that now surrounded him. Rome would not be pleased with this kind of insurgence, this kind of uprising. He wished to quell as quickly and as swiftly as possible this uprising so that Rome would not be upset with him. After all, he was a political leader and he wanted to protect his name so he could high, rise higher in the ranks of the Roman leadership. It is in those regards I would point you to this. As this act proceeds, we quickly learn that Act 4 is now before us. Pilate has to make the decision. It is his to make one way or the other. The chief priests and the rulers are insistent Pilate goes in and speaks with Jesus, and he comes back and says, I find no fault in this man. He does that not once, not twice, but three times. Three times he admits frankly and openly to those who heard, I find no reason of death in him. And yet all along he knew that for envy they had brought him. He sensed the whole reason, the mission behind their activity. And it is in that regard that we notice that as Pilate questioned Jesus, he finally comes up with this idea. It was a tradition that he would in fact release a prisoner each year, the one that they requested, and he thought this was the marvelous opportunity. Surely they will ask for Jesus to be released instead of Barabbas. After all, this insurrectionist had been guilty of both robbery and murder. Surely they would not request him. Pilate underestimated them, didn't he? For they said, give us Barabbas. At that moment, Pilate was then in a greater decision. Well, what do I do then with Jesus? 
those chief priests and the rulers that were there, as they mingled among the people that were gathered, they stirred them up, crucify him, crucify him. However, Pilate knew, I find no reason of death in him. But if I don't satisfy these Jews, Rome's going to hear about the uprising and my career is at stake. And so he goes back in, speaks to Jesus again. As he comes forth, he does order him scourged. Scourge him. Perhaps they will at least be satisfied with this degree of punishment and will be willing, no doubt, to allow him to be released. And so off the Lord goes to be tied to a post and whipped mercilessly, beaten and beaten and beaten. It could rather honestly be said he was just a massive bloody pulp by the time they finished. These Roman soldiers known for their ruthlessness and brutality had beaten him and beaten him. More than once, other writers have informed us that quite often a man never survived the scourging. He died there at the post. Jesus survived. The kind of physical shape he was in must have been a daunting thing for any of us to imagine. But he survived. And as he, in fact, survived this scourging, this merciless whipping and beating, we now recognize that again Pilate shows him to the crowd, Now what shall I do with this man? And now the chief priests and rulers didn't just instigate the people. They cried out, crucify him! Crucify him! With the blood on their lips and the thought of murder in their heart, they would be satisfied with nothing less. And so it was that Pilate recognized, and even his wife did the same. She had had a dream in which she told him, have nothing to do with this just man. Matthew 27 informs us. But it was the case that Pilate, in a figurative fashion, took a basin of water, washed his hands of the matter, and said, His blood's on you. It's not on me. And they turned to this Jesus, this one who had been so beaten, so tortured, so brutally treated, turned him over to this mob, this mob that had been instigated with murder in their eyes, and it was to him that Pilate turned the Savior you'll notice that Pilate is the one later in scriptures that is recognized as the weak one who didn't make the right decision. He had the authority and jurisdiction to do what was right, but he buckled beneath the pressure. And as such, of course, he had a very great hand in all of these activities. As you can see near the end of Act 4, even after scourging him, they still weren't satisfied. They put this purple robe on him. They, in fact, put a reed in his hand to portray the act of a scepter and we must we certainly must not forget the crown of thorns plaited on his head can you imagine that after the lord had been scourged the way that he had he now was virtually at the point of death already and yet they still were unsatisfied producing a crown of thorns to place upon his head and with that reed the text says they of course would hit him on the head pounding that crown of thorns further and further into his scalp and into his skull, the blood profusely pouring from both his back and his front, and now his head covered in that precious blood from one who had done nothing wrong. Never once. Not even a bad thought. Never an ill word. Never a deed of harm and transgression of the will of God. And yet there he stood. Perhaps barely, but there he stood. At this point, of course, we readily move to Act 5. They gave him the cross to carry. 
That was the custom in that day. To that victim would carry the cross to the place of the crucifixion. And of course the Jews were now incessant with the assistance of the Roman soldiers to carrying this out. And so the Lord trudged difficult and hard step after difficult and hard step to that place of Golgotha, just a little distance, of course, outside the place of, of Jerusalem proper. And as the Lord trudged in that direction, already so weakened from the loss of such great amount of blood, no doubt those who would be aware of the physical condition could tell us by this point almost surely he was in hypervolemic shock. The kind of torture and trauma he had already experienced, but onward he went. And may we again remind ourselves, at any moment he could have stopped this. At any moment he could have brought an end to it, and all of them there could have been brought to death, and he could have risen back to heaven, and we'd still be in our sins too. Onward he trudged toward the cross. As he carried that part, he no doubt knew, of course, that the greatest torture was still ahead. He fell beneath the load, it would seem, for more than one of the gospel writers tell us that a gentleman, a Cyrenian, was compelled, a gentleman named Simon, to assist him in the carrying of it. And so onward they went to that place. By now we have reached not only the morning hours, but the sun is up, but it's not a day of brightness. About 9 a.m., we're told in the scriptural text, they reached this place of Golgotha. As they reach there, of course, again, in his weakened condition, they proceed to attach him to that cross. And not just him, there are two more with him. There will be three crucifixions this day. But as we give thought, only one of them is worthy of our consideration this morning. Jesus is the one that had been scourged so much. He's the one that was bearing, of course, such a great load. The time comes, they, one of these Roman soldiers pulls out a large hammer and takes a spike that's about seven inches long. Pound after pound, it goes into one arm. One wrist, if you please, one area very near the hand, and that hand is affixed to that cross. And then after that nerve is so severed and the greatness of intensity and pain, that shock that we mentioned earlier will only be amplified. Now the other arm is stretched out and the same thing happens again. We don't know the number of pounds and strikes it took to drive in that nail, but we do know what torture and agony it must have been. Think about the nerves that run through that part of the wrist into the hand. The shot would have been amazing. And yet after that's over, now comes the feet. With his hands now fixed to the cross and the agony and pain associated with that, then his feet are crossed at the ankle area. And now a spike is driven not through one but through both of them, affixing into this cross. And so now there he lay on the ground affixed to the cross in such great convulsions perhaps. And then they raise up that and drop the post into its hole. And now there's the Son of God, the one who had done nothing to any of these people. He came to save them. He came to teach them. He came to encourage them. And now they look up at Him. These soldiers, of course, as they were in the vicinity, the text says they spat upon Him. This still was an interest in them to insult Him even further. Can you imagine them walking by and with their mouth spitting upon the Son of God? By this point, many, no doubt, of the Jewish leaders had already turned to go away. Some of them, it seems, were still in the vicinity, 
they wondered if he's going to come off this cross. The Lord proceeded to have some conversations while they're on that cross. And it is an amazing thing to consider the pain that must have surrounded those conversations. Because think about the state in which he was. As he was on the cross, the only way to breathe was to push up with his legs so that air could be brought into his lungs. Every time he did that, his open back rubbed against that old wooden cross, opened the wounds all over again. The blood continued to stream downward moment after moment. Yet he found the strength to say seven things. One of them was this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The level of love in a statement like that, perhaps you and I will never fathom. To be able to look upon the very soldiers, the very Jewish leaders perhaps, the very ones who had had a hand in bringing this to pass, forgive them, for they simply don't know what they're, going, what they're doing. He spoke also to his mother. He spoke also to John. As he spoke to all of them, his last statement was this, It is finished. And he gave up the ghost, John 19.30. That life that had been such a testimony is now over in the flesh. He was dead. As that particular evening was waning onward to hasten the death, those Roman soldiers came and broke the legs of the other two, those thieves that were crucified with him. But Jesus had already died. The Roman soldier thrust his spear into the side of Jesus. Out came water and blood, indicating that he had already died and passed on. As you and I, again, consider the nature of Act 5, the crucifixion has now happened, and what a day of darkness it was. By far the darkest deed that evil human hands have ever done. We put to death the Son of God. We put to death the only one who had the power to save us. We put to death the only one God ever sent in grace and in love to provide the remedy for your sins and mine. With that on our mind, might I invite us to make a concluding thought as we looked at the events of this crucifixion. The greatest human being by far, because of course He was God, the greatest one to ever walk this planet was treated like this. He'd been brutally slain and He allowed it to happen. In John 10 verses 17 and 18, He said, No man taketh my life from me. I lay it down to myself, and I'll take it up again. He voluntarily did this. What love there is in what we've studied this morning. And He did it, friend, for me and for you. Isn't that a testimony of just how much God wanted us to be with Him forever? Isn't this a testimony to some of the things that now we can say in these words? Why did He allow this to happen? Why was He willing to go through it? He went through it because of you and me. He didn't have anything to gain. He didn't have any sin. But we do, and they did. He did all of this for us. I might invite you to give some thought to what the New Testament says. It is possible to crucify the Son of God afresh. Are you doing that? Can you imagine yourself standing there pounding those nails into His feet and into His hands? If you reject the offer of the gospel, if you've heard the truth of God, but time and time again you have not responded positively to it, it's as if you are in some ways crucifying Him all over again. You're stating you have no interest in what He offers. 
you're stating you have no idea or really no interest in proceeding in the matter that he would have you go. In Hebrews 10, verses 25 to 28, that very passage is found. If we turn our back in rebellion on the gospel by our indifference, our apathy, our love, it's as if we're crucifying him all over again. May we each think seriously, earnestly about the crucifixion. It was a horrific event. I have tried to describe it. I'm sure I haven't done it justice. I feel safe in saying that. To have been there watching, it was probably more than any of us could have borne. And yet he went through all of it. The gospel call of invitation is going to be opened. In fact, it's open all the time. But we're going to stand in just a moment and sing a song of encouragement. It is an encouragement to all of us to devote our life more than ever to the call of the gospel. Why? Because of what He did for us. If He did that for us, should we not, ought we not, to give our all to Him? The services of the church make this an opportune time. If there's a person in this audience, maybe even more than one, who has never publicly responded initially to the gospel invitation, Jesus went through all of that so that you could go through a simple set of acts and be saved by His blood. Paul knew that power. Peter knew it too. And so did the other gospel writers. And so they encourage us to know it. Today, if you need to respond, believe in your heart, Jesus, to be the Son of God. Believe He went through that. Repent of your sins because that's what caused it. Confess His great name as the Son of God and then simply, and with humility, be immersed in water, baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. If today we could assist you in that, why not today? If you have become a member of His body and have known what that was like to experience it and understand it, but maybe you've forgotten it. You've lost touch with what the crucifixion involved and what the Lord did for you. Please come back to that first love today. Set these events on the forefront of your mind and never ever forget them. It is true, each Lord's Day we're supposed to remember them. Maybe this will help us in a few moments remember them even more vividly. But if you need to come forward and confess sin in your life, we'd pray with you and for you and God will forgive. He's promised it. If we could help you today, don't delay, don't wait, don't procrastinate, but come if you would while together we stand and while we sing.